Hi, I'm Hannah. And I'm Sarah. And this is Big Small Talk. This is the podcast where we try and cover the entirety of the news cycle from the serious to the frivolous all in one place. Because loving pop culture doesn't mean you don't understand politics. Today we're going to talk about the referendum result, Matilda Jerf, Israel Hamas, Jada Pinkett-Smith and Will Smith, the New Zealand election and the era's movie premiere. But first, we would like to start by acknowledging the traditional owners of the land on which we're recording today, the Gadigal people, and pay our respects to elders past and present. But before we get into the headlines this week, what is your personal headline? I was in Brisbane over the weekend doing, I did 10 bookstore visits and two bookstore like launch events. And at the first launch event on the Friday night, I had a cheek follower come and bring me a rug that she had made that was a bite back themed book cover rug. That is so cool. It was amazing. And I had another follower make like matching friendship bracelets, very Taylor Swift coded that were like bite back with love hearts. Um, And it was really nice. And then I had someone else buy me another book from an author that they're friends with to read. Like I just got gifted a book. And the bookshop that put on the events made cheek and bite back themed cocktails for the event. It was so wonderful despite the sort of terrible atmosphere that the weekend amounted to. The the events were beautiful. So it was really heartwarming. That's really nice. It was God, really nice. feels so special. I did feel so special. I don't even know where to put the rug. It's actually on my like kitchen counter right now. Just like everyone who walks in must look at it. They're going to need to get a visual on this rug. I'm going to send you a photo. <laughs> okay. I'm gonna, we're going to put up the rug somewhere. Okay. We're show on the it. rug. I love it. What's yours? Uh, <laughs> my mom's going to kill me for saying this personal headline, but it's too funny. Is it funny? I think it's funny now. I didn't think it was funny at the time, but I'm laughing now. So I introduced my mum to a very new relationship. Slay. (laughs) And and I always have to like process everything that happened that night. But I think one of my favourite parts of it was when she said... I like you. You're such a straight shooter. And you know why you're a straight shooter? Because you're a Taurus. And I was like, how does she know his birthday? Your mom is such a character. I've never met her, but the I know her. Like, I intimately know your mom, right? I was like... How did, like, either, either she sensed, like, he was a Taurus, because she was right. She sensed it. Like, okay, these are the options. Either she sensed it. Or she's done a deep dive on his Facebook prior. What would you prefer, personally, that she sensed it? Because then we've got another issue on our hands where the stars actually might be a real thing that people can feel out. I don't know what I'd prefer. but I, I actually personally love the energy and I'm so glad this happened because it's been my comedic relief all morning. It's been brilliant. So thank you for being a good sport. You're welcome. You're welcome. All right, let's get into the headlines. The Voice to Parliament referendum has failed. So on Saturday, Australia voted against the enshrinement of an Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander voice in our constitution. The votes are still being counted. As it stands, about 79% of eligible votes have been tallied so far. Only 39% of Australians, or around 5.43 million people, voted yes, while 60.7%, or 8.38 million, voted no. The Australian Capital Territory was the only jurisdiction that voted in favour of the voice and they wouldn't have counted towards the double majority anyway because they are not a state, they are only a territory. I don't like the use of the word only, but factually that's what our constitution sets out. The national vote overall was also a no, clearly. Um, According to The Guardian, communities where Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people formed more than 50% of the population voted, on average, 63% in favour of the voice, including... 
in the community which is home to the family of Jacinta Price, the Shadow Minister for Indigenous Australians, where three in four people voted yes. I think it's clear from the polling in these remote communities where Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people make up quite a significant part of the population that they did want to voice, despite what a lot of the no campaign claimed. Mm. And that's exemplified here. While the Northern Territory voted against the voice overall, 74% of the remote areas of the seat voted yes, and only one of the 20 mobile remote polling booths in this seat recorded a majority no vote. I thought it was interesting that the Tiwi Islands, Water and Maningrida all exceeded a yes vote of 84%. <sighs> the result continues the pattern of our history of referendums where there has never been success without bipartisan support, so support of both sides. I, I think interestingly, but unsurprisingly, Peter Dutton has already walked back on his commitment to holding another recognition-only referendum if he was elected Prime Minister. Was that immediately? Yesterday. Immediately. He basically came out and said that Australians won't want another referendum after this and just started that backtrack immediately. As predicted. As predicted. And I think that that's because when he came out with that claim during the during the course of the campaign, people were confused by his messaging as to whether he supported recognition at all or what he was seeking um, to sort of like rectify and close the gap for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. But despite that commitment, he's already... No, he was never on that. Yeah. I think that's a really interesting point, the bipartisan support. There was nothing from the other side that was in support of this. No, and, you know, there was big claim around the use of the language executive government in the wording of the alteration. And so Peter Dutton was sort of claiming that if the government hadn't used that wording, that he may have been open to supporting. And so a lot of the commentary that's come out yesterday has been around what could have been put to Peter Dutton that he would have agreed to. And I actually don't think anything. No. I don't think there was a world where he supported this. And I think that to look back on it now and start looking at the what ifs uh, is actually quite unhelpful because I I think that no matter how you voted, if you're listening to this, I think it's really obvious the harm that it's caused. This debate has caused to First Nations people in this country and I I don't think we can reconcile that. I mean, as a yes voter, I'm deeply ashamed. You know, sorry doesn't cut it and saying that doesn't cut it and we can't do anything right now to rectify this, but it, it was a really, really sad day and a really horrible political atmosphere in our country on Sunday, I thought. I think in the run up to it, we had that sinking feeling that this wasn't going to get up. And so I wasn't shocked by the result. But I was still, I, and I know even the polling was showing, so I shouldn't have been as shocked. But to see it, such a landslide, was still, took me back. Absolutely. Like, I have goosebumps right now, like, yeah. thinking about it. And I agree. When I was watching the results come in and it was just state by state, immediately, within an hour, no, yeah. no, no. Yeah. And we also saw across our Instagram feeds a resounding yes. So I think that's kind of where the disparity is that I think we were looking around on our social media feeds and the algorithm obviously is an echo chamber. But if you're looking at Instagram, you're seeing that everyone in your life is voting yes. And then if you're looking at Facebook, you're seeing all of this misinformation spreading like a quite a a racist conservative no. Mm. And we know that it wasn't the progressive no that won here. It was the, the conservative no. Yeah. I'm really interested to see the grand plans that they have for closing the gap because they feel so confident in the no vote that they were willing to deny the voice. And I think that young people should take this as a motivating force to do more. I was going to say, I think that's one of the big things here. If you were a yes voter or a progressive no voter even, and you have seen this and you've been shocked and you've been sad over the weekend... Put, like put your money where your mouth is. Absolutely. Sort of thing. See what you can do to get involved 
to do more than just, oh, I tried. Absolutely. And, and I think it's pause for reflection for me too, because I know that it, there's, there's so much power in online activism and social media and mm. talking about these issues, but it really is evidence of the fact that that only goes so far. And that if we're not having hard conversations with the people in our lives about our political views, we aren't actually making change because we do have to move forward. And if we want to fight for this change into the future and, and the kind of vision of Australia that we want to have as the next generation, that requires us talking to our parents and grandparents about our politics. And that's uncomfortable, but it's necessary. And in the wake of this as well, I saw there was a statement that was put out. Yes, I saw. So the Yes campaigners have called for a week of silence to grieve the outcome and the consequences in the fallout of the referendum. And that's included um, lowering the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander flags to half-mast for a week. I, it, understandably, First Nations people have been put through significant trauma and pain throughout this referendum, purely because many parts of the media have really made their lived experience and identities political fodder and a political football. To see this outcome now, I don't think they want to be put on television and forced to talk about it in more detail for the next few days. And that's completely understandable. So there has been call for a week of silence. Um, and I'm not sure what happens next. Uh, and I would say to you, again, put your money where your mouth is and, and what's next in terms of talking about treaty and truth. It's been a tough week for Scandi star blazer wearing linen head to toe Dyson blowout girls in the wake of criticism from their cult leader, Matilda Jerk. <laughs> I love that headline. I am that headline. I look at me, I'm in my blazer right now. My hair is half up. I'm wearing I am an influencer's dream. I love Matilda Jerf. I don't even know if I'm pronouncing her name right because I think I've seen her on Instagram and it's Dejerf, so I think in my head I've always just said Dejerf and I'm learning recently I've been saying it wrong, which I love to do with people's names. Please continue to do, can, can you? I'm going to just say it differently, I think, every time throughout this story. I, I love that, mix it up, keep people guessing. I think she is 90% of my saved photos on Instagram. I and didn't even know who she was. This is what I mean, like I don't understand how you didn't know who she was. I'm pretty sure she's a household name now. I, I, would I think go she's your household name. No, 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 I swear to God, she's a household name. She's Look, we, like, can, we can poll the people. I think you'll find you're wrong. <laughs> I, I, I can't wait to be wrong. Can you tell me who she is? Okay, so she's an influencer from Stockholm and she has over 3 million followers. She's like the darling of the internet. For me, personally, I would say she went as far as to like bring Scandi girl style into the mainstream. Not obviously in Scandinavia, but like <laughs> in like Australia. <laughs> and I would hold her like personally responsible for why you see so many girls like clubbing with a blazer on now. Like, oh, okay. <laughs> if you don't know about her for her Scandi style, you would also possibly know her because she has perfect hair. I know that sounds ridiculous, but she genuinely has perfect hair. She made the Dyson Airwrap what it is, and she, like, gave Fringes a new lease of life. Oh. She's a, yeah. That's quite inspiring. She's a trendsetter. I'm going to follow her, maybe. I will also add that I loved following her, and I have loved following her for years now, because she does seem really sweet and quite level-headed, and she doesn't annoy me in, like, in the same way that other influencers do, because she just seems quite, like, quite shy and sweet, is the way I describe yeah. it, with perfect hair. Like, it's hard not to like. <laughs> anyway, she started a brand called Jerf Avenue. I believe it started back in 2019 and its success was instant. In the first year, she made $1.8 million in revenue. Last year, she hit just shy of $34.5 million. Mm. And she's our age. An important thing to note when explaining her brand is that her brand 
is her through and through. It is the most effective way to steal Matilda's style because each piece is designed to look exactly like something she has previously worn and loved and posted about. And in turn, Jeff version of it becomes exactly that. So it's genius because I would describe it as making the Scandi It Girl like capsule wardrobe, something that's purchasable and achievable because you know you can just go straight to her website and all the pieces are there. Genius. Yeah. Not only is she huge on Instagram, but her personal TikTok account has around like 2 million followers and Jerf around 400,000. That is until last week when Matilda had to deactivate her TikTok account. (gasps) (gasps) So why did she do that? What's happened? So Matilda deleted her account after a huge amount of backlash was posted by other creators. They started criticising Matilda because Matilda's brand started issuing small content creators with trademark warnings. Mm. Essentially, Jerf Avenue started tracking down and having content from other creators stricken if they were posting about Jerf dupes. Oh. Yeah, so dupes... Everyone knows, dupes is... You can't stop dupes. Dupes are huge. Yeah. Anyway, the main example of this being from a creator called Aaliyah Summer. So Aaliyah posted a video that's been liked just shy of like 90,000 times and which she explained that... Jerf had complained about and reported two of her previous videos. In the first video, Aaliyah discusses a pair of Amazon pajamas that appear to be similar to Jerf's go slow pair. You've probably have you seen that little fruit pattern everywhere? Yes. So that's Jerf. I see. Okay, so in the second video, she then made a how-to on how to create Matilda Jerf style using cheaper pieces from Amazon. Mm-hmm. Aaliyah's video took off and that's when it completely snowballed and then all these other creators started posting about their own warnings that they had received. Then Jerf Avenue had to release a statement on both their TikTok and Instagram story to address all of this. And part of it read, Unfortunately, there's been a recent surge in websites selling products with our design and own prints and artworks that are copyrighted under company Matilda Jerf Design. Any types of videos or content with our prints that are used on non-Jerf Avenue items, such as dupes, will be automatically reported due to copyright infringement from our IP firm and is consistently removed by content platforms in accordance to their infringement policies. In light of this, and to safeguard our prints and the individual print designers, we've had an external intellectual property IP firm monitoring copyright infringements. So pretty much what she's saying is like, we don't want people taking our designs like that we've worked really hard on. It's our IP, so we're going to issue you infringements. We don't want dupes being made, essentially. Many people were chill with that response and understanding. Very many people were not, though. Mm. So the argument was that Matilda claiming IP on her designs was just a bit of a contradiction because the Scandi minimalist aesthetic was not actually invented by her. <laughs> she did not personally create the boxy blazer or the button-down linen shirt. Scandi style was existing and thriving well before Jerf Avenue, meaning the inspiration for Jerf Avenue designs came from other designers. Yes. <laughs> An example on TikTok has been like the blue apt shirt that Matilda wore back in 2019. She wore this blue collared shirt, went off on Instagram, which was Virtually the exact same that Jerf then produced their own version of two years later. I see. Another example being like she had a pair of like silk cream trousers on that were from a brand called Jack Swim. And then in 2022, Jerf Avenue released a very similar pair and called it the Dream Pant. So the list goes on and on. But pretty much everyone's like, "Mm, 
pretty ironic you're calling out dupes when your brand is essentially a dupe. dupe. <laughs> like, but but the, the difference really is that she's clever enough to actually not call it a dupe and to rebrand and slightly change things, which often is enough to um, escape copyright and that intellectual oh, property. Yeah, so, so it's not a copyright or infringement no, no, issue no, with her, I, but I, it's just like a state of mind thing more. It's very interesting because I do think it's ironic and I absolutely think it's hypocritical, but I do find it interesting because people coming out and saying just immediately it's a, a jerf dupe is too close. I can understand why she would claim that, even though she's being hypocritical. Yeah, I know, I know, I agree. But I guess it's not the brand itself saying it's a dupe, is it? They're probably doing exactly what she's doing and just mimicking the style but not calling it that. Well, a lot of it's like Amazon or other things like that. This is fascinating. And dupes are huge on TikTok, like how to get this style, how to dress like a whatever girl, substitutes for this and that. Like it's a huge market that so many brands are benefiting on. And it's like the crux of a fashion girly online presence is to find alternatives for everything. And I think the other big thing with dupes is like, Jerf Avenue is not cheap. It is really expensive. Like it is at a very high price point. So people wanting to recreate the style, which is a very minimalist minimalist style at a more accessible price point. That's the market. Yeah, like that's, sorry, that's, people should be able to recreate stuff at a more accessible price point. Came out for skims, you know. (laughs) (laughs) Literally. And I think it's tough to like claim IP on stuff because like when does it all begin and end? Yes. Then in saying that, I do agree that while it doesn't make sense to attack other creators, it does make sense for her to be going for the businesses that are making the dupes instead of the creators that are just being created. Yeah, that's really interesting. I completely agree. And the other thing I would say in defense of Matilda, though, because I do love her, (laughs) is I also think there's something to be said on the higher you climb in business, especially in business as a woman, the further you have to fall. I think women aren't afforded the same level of mistakes Mm, in business. Interesting. I like the take. Do you? I like it. Let it sit in the air. Let it hang there. (laughs) Let's take it in. But she's also a millionaire. She's also a millionaire. And she is going after tiny people compared to her. Do you know what I mean? Like she's really But that's the businesswoman. But she's punching down. And that's the problem people will have is that she's punching down. Yeah. Yeah. So I think there's there's both sides to that. And it's against her whole aesthetic and persona to do so. Yes, and I I I completely agree. Like I think at first I was like, oh, I get it. You know, if you you know, legally you could have a go and try and make the case and make the test. Um but I do agree that she she is being so hypocritical and con- contradictory. It's an interesting story. It is an interesting story. And I love the legal intersection with the pop culture, Sarah. Wow. It really slayed my morning. <laughs> Let's get across the key updates on the rapidly evolving situation between Israel and Hamas. So I'm just going to run through some of the most basic updates and and get through a sort of list of what we know at the moment. So the death toll has exceeded 4,100 people across Israel and Gaza. The Gaza Health Ministry has stated that 2,750 Palestinians have been killed and more than 9,700 have been injured in the Israeli response and another 1,000 are missing under the rubble following the destruction of buildings during Israeli airstrikes. The Israeli military say more than 1,400 have been killed and 3,600 and counting are injured. Israel has allegedly used white phosphorus in its continuing military operations in Gaza and Lebanon, putting civilians at serious risk. Now, this is according to Human Rights Watch um, following their investigation, but the Israeli Defence Force denies these allegations made. 
the World Health Organization has warned Gaza faces an imminent public health crisis as they are running out of water. UN experts have warned Gaza is being what they've described as strangled by the Israeli government's siege and aerial bombardment. Palestinian civilians have warned that food, water and fuel supplies are running out and have less than 24 hours of these resources left. Just on that, I think that's really important. I mean, we did have that update because this happened last Mm. week. But if you didn't know, Israel has still cut off electricity, food and water to Gaza. That is so inhumane. Yes, so I... I, I'm actually struggling to read this and get through it. It's just so hard to stomach. I also saw on the ABC this morning that the Israeli energy minister has agreed to restore water supply to parts of southern Gaza, but I don't think that's been enacted yet. So I think it's just a claim so far. Okay. The European Union will launch a humanitarian air corridor to Gaza through Egypt with the first flights expected this week. Um, and the UN Security Council is set to vote on dueling proposed resolutions on the Israel-Hamas war. So notably, the Russian proposal is calling for a ceasefire, while Brazil's draft of a resolution is seeking humanitarian pauses to allow aid to flow and is urging Israel to sort of rescind its order for an evacuation of northern Gaza. Both are calling for the release of all hostages. So Brazil currently is just a member of this organ of the UN, but has the presidency role at the moment, whereas Russia has v- power. So it's kind of like choosing between these proposed resolutions and what the UN is going to put forward, essentially. But if that's acted on, it's an entirely other thing. You know, like that's just a proposed resolution. And and again, I just want to reiterate that this is a rapidly evolving situation and we will continue to cover this and provide updates. And we provided quite a bit more background information and context in last week's episode, which you can go back and listen to. But I also want to take this opportunity to talk about what's happening in Australia yeah. because we've quite we've seen quite a few protests in the last week and quite a few arrests. So I want to run people through those as well. Um, so protesters have gathered in solidarity with Palestine in multiple cities around the country, including Sydney, Melbourne and Adelaide, as Israel prepared to launch the ground invasion of Gaza after last weekend's attacks. Police estimate 6,000 people attended the gathering in Hyde Park in Sydney, while another 10,000 people, it's claimed, marched through Melbourne in support of Palestine. Now, New South Wales police uh, were going to use what they describe as extraordinary police powers Mm. over the weekend in relation to specifically the Palestinian protests. Um, but they did not follow through with their plan to enact these powers that would have essentially permitted them to search protesters without reason and arrest and charge people who refused to identify themselves. It's quite a confronting proposal that the New South Wales Acting Police Commissioner, David Hudson, put forward. And he stated he believed the threshold had been met for using these powers. And, and these powers specifically, and I think this is notable, were introduced and legislated after the Cronulla riots in 2005. And essentially they could have allowed police to lock the city down in Sydney and arrest and search protesters without reason, which is a very, very high level of power being mm. exerted by the police force. Mm. I, I think that when we're, we are describing these, they are an extraordinary use of police power. And I think that can't be underestimated because it's interesting the way that it went from the sort of Israel uh, solidarity in front of the Opera House at the beginning of last week, but by the time the pro-Palestine protesters wanted to move into Sydney, that's when police decided to argue that they wanted to use those powers. Well, the Albanese government has come out very pro-Israel. Yes, and that's something that I, I wanted to talk about too because, you know, he's facing a mountain of criticism after condemning Hamas and moving a motion calling for parliament to stand with Israel and denounce anti-Semitism. But the Greens attempted to amend that motion um, to also condemn Israeli war crimes mm-hmm. and that failed. 
whilst Peter Dutton, on the other hand, the opposition leader, used this opportunity and when this motion was being passed by the Prime Minister to try and position the government as weak for not providing a stronger response to the pro-Palestine protests. Mm. So that's kind of where we're sitting at with our political landscape is the government's failing to condemn the actions of the Israeli Defence Force and the Israeli government Mm. and is basically saying that they should use whatever means necessary, which is... Albanese is just like, it's a right to defend. That's, 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 the, that's the essence of the claim, yeah. basically. But coming back to the police use of force around these protests, while they didn't use them at the pro-Palestine protest, they alleged the necessity of them following a protest last Monday where some attendees, which I will reiterate were a minority of attendees, let off flares and again chanted these anti-Semitic slows, which aren't worth repeating. They're disgusting. Yeah. And three men were also arrested last week after allegedly performing Nazi salutes outside the Sydney Jewish Museum. So the... The atmosphere is is genuinely disgraceful and these actions should be condemned. But I also think that there is an imbalance right now, the way this is being spoken about. Now, this is where I think I want to get into a bit the media coverage, because I think right now it's really hard to determine with social media and the mainstream media what is fact and what is misinformation. And Mm. I'm even struggling personally to deal with what I'm seeing. Yeah. Yeah. You're experiencing the same thing. Yeah, absolutely. And and one of the constant questions I've been asking is, yeah, when it comes to this coverage and this footage that's coming in, some of it's, you know, very confronting, what is real? Now, I was actually reading an article by The Conversation last night, which I think is absolutely worth reading some of. So basically they were saying that several media reports have pointed to a surge of fake posts around the Israel-Hamas conflict on X, formerly known as Twitter which have recently made significant changes in how it operates. So The Guardian pointed to data from Israeli monitoring firm, I think it's called Siabra, which covers US election disinformation and tracks bot accounts on Twitter to demonstrate the levels of fake posts. And basically, they were looking at and scanning over 2 million pictures, posts and videos, and out of 162,000 profiles, a quarter were fake. 25% were fake. It's not surprising. It's not surprising, but I think it's really important to remember when we're engaging purely with information we're seeing through social media that isn't attributed to a new source. Mm. So it's just something to keep in mind when you're consuming this information. And I want to remind people that the vast amount of imagery and accounts being shared by the media are real, but some users are pushing fabricated material. And that includes, I've seen these specific examples, so users have shared false claims that a top Israeli commander had been kidnapped. Mm -hmm. Um, There was circulation of a doctored White House memo, which was purporting to show President Biden announcing billions in aid for Israel. And there's also been like an increase in shares of videos of Russian President Vladimir Putin with inaccurate English captions. And they're just old resurfaced videos basically being used out of context for different reasons to show different sort of political engagement here. It's really interesting. And also there's, I want to point people in the direction of one uh, post by Gen Z media site Zfeed, who were talking about the concept of asymmetric warfare. And I thought this was really interesting. It's something I hadn't really thought about, but it really allowed me to view media through a new context this week, I feel, around this this conflict. Um, And it's the concept that media and social media presents a conflict as even-handed when there's actually a massive disparity between the power of the forces. Mm. So the post talks about the international system favouring a structured, formalised side, which in this case would be Israel, um, over a smaller armed group, Hamas. So I think the most obvious example of how the government presents it as almost an even-handed fight would be Anthony Albanese coming forward and condemning the actions of Hamas without also talking about the Israeli government's response. 
presenting that as an even-handed fight in some way when it's absolutely not. Mm. I think it's just about acknowledging and understanding that what we're being presented with by different news sources isn't necessarily to be trusted at face value. There's so many agendas. There's so many agendas. And also, we were talking about this this morning, and I know Mm. you wanted to chat about it, was the amount of celebrities and public figures who think they're international relations scholars. (laughs) I was going to bring this up. I think... In the same way so many people are posting about this right now. It's tough because I do believe in the power of social media to get things across. And I believe if you have a huge audience, there is an element that people would say you have a responsibility to speak up on things like this. And then on the flip side, it's also like, yeah, but misinformation is so dangerous. And I think a really good example of this I saw was Jamie Lee Curtis and Justin Bieber posted photos to their stories of like ruin and put Israeli flags next to it. And Jamie Lee Curtis's was a photo of children looking terrified, looking up at the sky and she captained it terror from the sky and then Israeli flags. It was photos of Gaza. And then they had to have people say, that's Gaza, not Israel. And then they just immediately deleted it. And this is the thing is that I completely agree. Like, why am I seeing a statement from Dwayne The Rock Johnson about, you know, this, the context and the history of what's happened here Mm. cannot be understood in a single social media post. And I think it's so reductive to attempt to do that. Mm. But I will say in that some people have actually done really well with it. Like, I, I mean, I know... She eventually had to turn comments off because, and Gigi Hadid is Palestinian, but Gigi Hadid made a post and I thought it was actually really eloquent and she got slammed. And I think the problem is in the comment section is it's not hard enough or it's not taking enough of a stance or it's, there's there's kind of a no win. No, of course. And it's like I was saying to you this morning, I saw the BBC was reporting that they've received over 1,500 complaints about their coverage, but it's an even split between people claiming it's prejudice towards either side. Mm. So, you know, no matter how you're reporting, people are going to be upset with the way it's occurring. You know, like I, I, I personally don't trust any site. And I'm trying to look at, you know, a range of sources at all times. And that's what I'm recommending everyone does. Mm. But it's really, it's a, it's a really hard week to be in news and to be trying to evaluate this information from an objective standpoint because mm. you just never can. Yeah. Um, and so I don't know where that leaves us, but I think it's just about continuing to try to engage with a range of news sources. I agree. Jada Pinkett Smith has got herself in a new kind of entanglement, this time with the media. The actress and talk show host provided a never-ending list of revelations about her marriage, which must feel like a real slap in the face for Will Smith. Whoa, Sarah. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. Oh, my God. Like, I am seeing so much, largely against my will, about Will Smith and Jada Pinkett Smith. Everything I learn about them is against my will. (laughs) So Jada has been on a press tour for an upcoming memoir that she's putting out called Worthy. And one of the biggest revelations so far is that she's been separated from Will since 2016. This is so PR, though. I have so many questions. Same. They've been married for, I believe, 26 years. Anyway, when talking during an interview with Today, she said... By the time we got to 2016, we were just exhausted with trying and they had become fractured by a lot of things. But then when the interviewer pressed her on like, why would you not get a divorce then? She pretty much said that that option was off the table for her. And she said, I made a promise that there will never be a reason for us to get a divorce. We will work through whatever. I just haven't been able to break that promise. What? That's so ridiculous. I agree that is ridiculous. That is so ridiculous. That's like really demonising divorce. 
But also, what, so you're living completely separate lives separated, but you just won't fill out the paperwork. That's what I mean. It's like, you're not in a I marriage. Mean, I don't know the ins and outs. I will, don't think I'll ever understand the ins and outs, but that's not a marriage uh. anyway. But what I want to know is like, how does any of this make sense with their timeline? Like, that's what's really weird for me. We did all infamously hear Will Smith last year at the Oscars say, keep my wife's name out of your fucking mouth. Iconic. Which, they're not even apparently together when that happened. No. Which makes that whole situation that was weird but already weirder. Sarah, they're not divorced, so <laughs> he, she is his wife. Well, Jada claimed in an interview that she was equally shocked in that moment when he was like, keep my wife's name, because she was like, we haven't called each other that in years. Interesting. And she had no idea what was going on, so she said she was just really worried about Will. Imagine going to award shows with the person you're separated from just to show face. Yeah. It's very strange. Sorry, keep going. This is fascinating. Well, then continuing her press tour, Jada sat down with New York Times, where she revealed that Will hadn't even lived with her for the last two years. Okay. Side note. She also then opened up about how she felt after Chris Rock finally broke his silence after the Oscars slap in the Netflix special, which we spoke about a few weeks ago, actually. And she said, I remember my heart piercing, my heart cracking. I remember my feelings being so hurt. But I also remember being able to smile and wish him well. What the fuck? She is a walking contradiction. I don't love this. This is really weird. She also said there was a lot of heat and build-up for the 2022 Oscars about... You know, that was the year the Oscars was like in the height of the controversy for being so white. And she had spoken to Chris Rock, sidelined, pretty much encouraging him not to host and to boycott. Mm-hmm. So she said like tensions were weird going into that award ceremony already, which you think may have contributed. Mm-hmm. And she also sort of suggested that him and Will had quite a complicated history. Okay. Then to make things weirder, she went on to say that Chris Rock actually asked her out on a date. And I assume this was before the slap, but she doesn't actually confirm the timeline of this. So she says to People magazine, I think every summer all the reports would come out that me and Will were getting a divorce, like those rumours would circulate. And this particular summer, Chris, he thought we were getting a divorce. So he called me and was like, I'd love to take you out. And I was like, what do you mean? And he was like, well, aren't you and Will getting a divorce? And I was like, no, Chris, those are just rumours. He was appalled and apologised profusely and that was that. But they were separated, apparently. Well, I'm kind of glad. That's lucky that that happened because if he thought they were living in divorce silently, he could have really brought it out at that time. (laughs) Okay, but the other thing I want to talk about is the Red Table Talk. A podcast interview thing on YouTube? Yes. Yeah, I've watched it before. It's very controversial. Probably the most well-known episode she did was with Will, where she spoke about her entanglement. Cheating? Well... Did you watch it? No. At the time? But wasn't it cheating? Sort of. Technically they were separated when she had okay. they had a, they were on a break. Thing. All right. So it really seemed during this like openly recorded conversation that they had that they were really working through their divorce. That was the point of this episode to like kind of air their dirty laundry and have this therapy session together. For context in this episode, they speak about how they did separate for a while and that Jada had a relationship with this singer called August. Throughout, Will truly gives like an award-winning performance, tearing up. And that's where all these like, there was like millions of Will crying memes. Which is bizarre because they would have been separated still. Never trust an actor. I know, but like, what was the point of this episode? It's, it's probably so still weird. emotionally activating anyway. Actually. I agree, but the whole point of the episode was we're working through it. 
Were they attempting to rekindle? I can't say I know the ins and outs of this. I'm just Sorry, saying. Sorry, I'm just proposing a bunch of conspiracies. <laughs> but yeah, I just have lots of questions. But also, like, this is only scratching the surface. Some of the other interviews she talks about, like, Tupac and, like, mm. all this other stuff. And I'm like, you are giving so much away in these press tours. What is in the book? Yeah. I am. It's working. I'm curious. Honestly, everyone's <laughs> going to buy the book, though. It's going to go off. The democracy snags were out in full force over the weekend and New Zealand has a new government following their election on Saturday. So the party has been in opposition since Jacinda Ardern led Labor to victory in 2017, but after Ardern stepped down in January and Chris Hipkins took over as Prime Minister, Labor have been led to defeat, essentially, at the New Zealand election on Saturday. So they went from 65 seats at the 2020 election to only retaining 34, it's projected currently. So it's a huge loss. It lost many to the National Party, which will form a coalition with the ACT Party in New Zealand. But minor parties all gained seats. Um, and essentially there were swings to both the left and right, but every swing was directly away from the Labour Party. One of the most notable changes was the increase for the Maori Party. So in New Zealand, there are seven seats reserved for Maori members, but six of those had been held by Maori members in the Labour government. Mm. Now, the current count looks like the party will hold four of those seven, the Maori party. So that's quite an interesting swing. I also read in an ABC article that a 21-year-old Maori party woman defeated New Zealand's foreign minister, which is huge. So she knocked out a Labour foreign minister, a massive part of their cabinet, and she's the youngest MP elected in 170 years. 170 years. Yeah, so like slay queen. Wow. That's really interesting because we don't see big hitters in governments usually knocked out. Like it's just, it's kind of unprecedented. Mm. The National Party, which is centre-right, is now going to be led by newly elected Prime Minister Christopher Luxon. Now, Christopher Luxon, before entering politics in 2020, was the CEO of Air New Zealand. Really? Yes. Oh, I didn't know that. I also think it's fascinating that we have a prime minister in New Zealand that was only entering politics in 2020. So he was... This, is this his, has been a huge... Yeah, this is his second term as of, you know, Saturday, basically. And he entered politics last election in 2020. A year later, he was made opposition leader. Wow. So that rise is just unprecedented again. It's, How it's, did that happen? I don't think that's ever happened here. No. Like that's just uncalled for, unheard of. So yeah, it's it's pretty astounding. Is he, he controversial in any way? I think it's very telling and typical of a more centre-right party. So he's been incredibly critical of the pandemic response and the New Zealand lockdowns that Jacinda Ardern led. Well, as an airline, I'd imagine. Uh, yeah, you you could imagine <laughs> that. But he was a politician by this time, but you can imagine it's bad for business. Mm. But his focuses are reducing tax on business, a tough-on-crime approach, specifically in relation to youth offending, a ban on phones in schools is one of his other key commitments, and scrapping the Labor government's plan to raise fuel taxes. And I think it's, it's interesting because a lot of people would have said that Jacinda Ardern was going towards defeat and that's why she jumped ship and and Chris Hipkins took over. But what I find interesting is that when Hipkins took over in January, he seemed to shelve some of Ardern's more progressive policies. And so he was more centre and then New Zealand's kind of just gone more further right than that. Right. So I don't know what's going to happen next, but I think it's a, a really interesting move in New Zealand and something to watch. Two of our most powerful world economic leaders, Taylor Swift and Beyonce Knowles, got together this weekend at a box office crushing Eras Tour movie premiere. Oh, this photo changed lives. So the Taylor Swift era is continuing its... (laughs) Is it dramatic to say world domination? It feels like that. No, I think she has saved many nations from a recession. (laughs) 
Um, the Eras Tour concert film nabbed an estimated US $95 million at the American and Canadian box office. For comparison, the Barbie movie, the highest grossing film of the year so far, took US $162 million on its opening weekend, while high-profile sequel Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning Part 1 made US $54.7 million. <gasps> It's huge. It's huge. Era's movie then made an additional US $31 million at the international box office and the Australian box office made $3.8 million. Is that big for us? It seems to be, actually. Like, yeah, I would a, say so. A small player. I would say so. For a bit of context, the North American box office opening weekend has already surpassed the total takings of Justin Bieber's 2011 concert film, Never Say Never, which had previously held the record for the highest grossing film in that genre. And that was one of my faves. I know. I don't think I've ever saw it. But oh, I saw it twice at the cinema. <laughs> and it's pretty insane when this movie was only announced six weeks ago, I believe, and mainly just through her Instagram. That's the thing. The marketing campaign's been so weak. So weak. Just entirely she didn't need it. Exactly. Have you seen it yet? I, no, I haven't I, either. I'm not. I'm actually not interested in seeing it. Oh, because of the because we're going to the tour. I want to see it live. I'm going to see it on Friday night. See, but I just don't want to ruin but it for myself. I've already seen the whole thing through live. TikTok. I know, but it's different. I respect you. I also think it's really interesting. In a very savvy business move from Taylor, she also independently released the movie after working out a deal with cinema chains, rather than going through a Hollywood studio. So she's like oh. cut out the middleman on that, which means she's expected to keep 57% of ticket sales. Holy shit. Beyonce has done the same. Geniuses. Geniuses. So the girl's making fucking bank. Like last week, the Washington Post reported that she could personally clear as much as US $4.1 billion from this global tour. Fuck Jesus. I know. And as I said in the headline, a truly incredible moment was when Beyonce herself joined. Was like, wow. Because people thought there was some sort of feud or like Yeah, gap. because they were sort of the, these big female tours happening at the same time. People tried to pit them against each yeah. other over oh the years God, a lot. Oh, my God, two women succeeding at the same time must be enemies. I like, know. No. I know. Um, Taylor Swift posted herself after, I'm so glad I'll never know what my life would have been like without Beyonce's influence. The way she taught me and every artist out there to break rules and defy industry norms, her generosity of spirit, her resilience and versatility, she's been a guiding light throughout my career and the fact she showed up tonight was like an actual fairy tale. Aww. They've come so far from the VMAs. Wow. I mean, Tree Payne probably drafted that, but you know what? I respect I do. I agree. <laughs> Beyonce is also putting out her own concert movie on December 1st from her massive Renaissance tour. Mm. During the premiere, she also went into each theatre and pretty much met with every fan individually. And then she stayed in one of the theatres and watched the concert with everyone. Which I think is hysterical because the videos from it, she's like dancing and singing as if she's not Taylor Swift watching Taylor, Taylor, Taylor Swift. Swift. Like it's just the, the confidence funniest. is amazing. I, I love know. that. Uh, what does she do? I saw it in a video. It was like one, two, three. Let's go, bitch! She yeah. like screams <laughs> it in the cinema with everyone. I saw this video. I'm like, is this narcissism or not? I don't know, but it's hysterical to me. If you also haven't seen, pl- <laughs> I don't know how you wouldn't have seen it. It's absolutely everywhere. More of a Travis Kelsey and Taylor Swift update. They were spotted holding hands after leaving SNL, where they both made appearances also, on SNL. apparently he couldn't make the premiere of the Eras Tour movie and he sent her two and a half grand worth of flowers. That's actually the most insane thing I've ever heard. Mm. Wow. <laughs> Not to be dramatic. Not to be dramatic. I actually think that is. Now we're at the Q&A section of the podcast. Thank you, everyone, who sent questions in. So please keep sending them in um, at bigsmalltalk underscore pod. And we have one here from Ginger, and she says... 
Firstly, love you both. <laughs> Thanks so much. <laughs> Secondly, question for the next pod. Why do territories' votes not matter as much in the referendum? Such a sad result. I'm looking for loopholes. Yeah, so the way a referendum passing works is it requires a double majority. So the first part of that double majority is that we have a national vote that exceeds 50%. So Mm -hmm. overall, the majority of the population must vote yes. And then we have to have a majority of states. And that means out of the six states, four must vote yes. The idea behind that is that there's dense populations in states like New South Wales and Victoria, and we want to ensure that there is still enough power in states like Tasmania and Western Australia to have their say in that equal more, to sort of give them more power geographically across the country, right? But when the constitution was created, the ACT and the Northern Territory didn't exist. When we talk about states, the wording in the constitution around the alteration of the constitution refers to states. Mm. They aren't states. So when the vote is counted, they count towards the national majority, that first part of the double majority, but not the second part, which is a majority of states. So that's why. And I completely agree. I think most of us were sort of baffled by this if you weren't uh, sort of familiar with the rules around the double majority and passing of the referendum. But the question then is, do those territories want to become states or do we need to change the constitution to include all states and territories around the alteration rules? So we'd have to actually go to if we were going to <laughs> we go to another referendum. We would have to go to, we'd have to go to a referendum and their votes still wouldn't count towards the double majority, you know what I mean? And if you think about it that way, or they could, through acts of parliament, become states. Gotcha. But I agree, and we should be lobbying for that change because we know that the Northern Territory has a higher population of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people in relation to their larger population, not the highest percentage overall, um, but in relation to their population size. So that is a question that we should be asking and moving towards, and we should be asking the residents of both of those territories what they feel and what they want. Really interesting. Thank you for listening again this week. Please send any questions, thoughts and feelings to bigsmalltalk underscore pod. And if you haven't, it would mean so much if you rated the podcast. Review? Do it all. Do it all, please. Tap the bell. Tap the bell. Yes. See you next Tuesday. See you next Tuesday.